You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Soap here. Excited to be joined by an original NLCLA OG from the original founding board. Jessica Howard is here. So we can talk early NLC. We can talk other things. So let's get to it. All right, Jessica, I don't feel like many people know or even remember because it was so long ago, the, the actual origin of the chapter, which was in 2009. So how did you come to be involved in actually getting this thing off the ground? That's a great question. To be honest, I can't remember every single detail leading up to it either. So we all have that in common. But I recall that a lot of it had to do with young professional uh, fundraising events we had all done, or at least participated in around the 2008 election. So that's where a lot of us uh, networked, um, got to know each other a bit more, whether that was around the presidential race or uh, the California AG race. So that's how we all got to know each other generally. And then once NLC was something that was going to likely come to LA. I think a number of us were pulled together to be part of that original founding board. And then what, what were you even looking for in the original class without any archetype or, or previous fellows to draw on? What were the top priorities? Uh, other than awareness of NLC, <laughs> minimal awareness, um, you know, I think the top priorities were people who were really excited to build a new organization, uh, bring some energy together. And certainly we had a bit of precedent with NLC chapter in San Francisco, and I think that's the founding location. But at the same time, uh, much of the energy around the election in 2008 anyway was about hope and coming together to build something new and profound together. So actually the timing for NLC growing and beginning in LA seemed seem pretty good too. So I think that energy was really mirrored in the folks who are on the founding board and also what we were looking for in the founding class. And then you've helped interview all the classes over the years, read applications. Anything surprise you about how things have changed from 2009 to now? That's a great question. I owe you guys my responses to, tomorrow, I think, <laughs> for this true. year's cohort. You got, so you got plenty of time. Okay, good. Well, I will say that through that time, I actually, for three or so years, was a college admission officer. So uh, my life day-to-day actually involved reading applications for some years. So it was interesting not only to see the evolution over time for the NLC cohorts, but also in comparison to that. Now, granted, I'm sure everyone who applied to NLC was glad they were not applying to college again um, since that process was so fun. But I think one thing I noticed is, honestly, the people just keep getting more and more impressive and uh, diverse and have really interesting experiences. Of course, there is more interaction with NLC alumni or the organization itself prior to them uh, applying. Certainly, when we started, we didn't have cool, fun mixers like you guys do now. Um, but the class has just become, uh, I think, more and more robust, which is to say that uh, I, th- I think more and more people being aware of NLC and uh, spreading, the- casting the net wider has really been helpful. Then again, it's all thanks to our initial cohorts. So I really think that the strength we started off with has really just continued and built momentum since. Yeah, I think you're right. And we're excited to meet the new class. We'll Keep reading apps, as you said. Your deadline <laughs> I is promise. tomorrow night. Yes, I will finish. And our, <laughs> yeah, and our main interview day is later this month, so we'll keep everyone posted. Hey, are you still living in Laurel Canyon? I am, yes, here in the little enclave that is Laurel Canyon. That's such an interesting part of LA, and I don't necessarily interact with people who, who live there or spend much time there. What drew you to the space, and what's the, what's the weirdest part about being there? 
<laughs> That's a good question. You know, there's, a, I think it's well known um, and well stereotyped that people west of the 405 try not to go east of the 405. I think people in Laurel Canyon generally try not to leave the canyon either. Uh, even some days the mist and the marine layer seem to feel the same way. But, um, you know, I would say it, it has a legacy of uh, 1960s, 70s singer-songwriters. I'm not one of them, but I'm an appreciator of them. And I think that still lingers. Uh, there is a very old school general store kind of halfway through Laurel Canyon um, during one of the swoopy lower parts of the boulevard. Um, and that is just a time capsule. Um, I think one of the weirdest and most fun things to do to immediately get a punch in the face about Laurel Canyon is to step into that general store. Um, and by general, I really mean general. It's sort of like old school dry goods kind of store um, with a random, very cozy brick walled Italian restaurant literally underneath it. So um, I think if that definitely is a hallmark of Laurel Canyon. Um, I, I guess another thing, it may sound odd. I guess it was great for the singer songwriters. Sound carries really well within the Canyon and a kind of funny thing I've noticed since living here is ambulance sounds carry well which then leads to all the dogs in the canyon howling in chorus with the ambulance that also carries very well. So we all know when we've got some rescuers coming to town. And then do you feel like living there has changed your perception of, of LA? I think about when I started working for Kip six and a half years ago, and even the place I'm at now, I've been fortunate to get to be in many different parts of LA where the schools are. So whether that was getting to know South LA better, East LA, the South East cities, even a little bit in the Valley now, it's such a different feel every time you're in a different community, but I really don't have much experience or background in the canyons. And I bet if I did have that, it would change how I viewed Los Angeles. Has that been true for you? And if so, how did it change? That's an interesting question. I grew up in LA and have lived in a number of different places in LA. So I'm always fascinated by the feels of neighborhoods and certainly how they evolve over time. I would say the canyon, there are a few things that come to mind. One is, it's pretty astonishing to me that you can live in the heart of a huge metropolis like LA and yet feel like you have a little getaway spot uh, like we do in the canyon. Um, again, whether the mist is surrounding you and you just can't see very far ahead or because it's actually real. Um, it's also, though, made me appreciate the valley a little more, actually. Um, I do love West Hollywood. There's plenty of stuff happening there, but I also really love not stressing about parking having some uh, maybe more old school uh, strips of mom and pop shops and um, just maybe generally being in the areas that Tom Petty used to sing about. So I really do like the Valley a lot. Uh, things sometimes even are cheaper there like sushi. And we I'm pretty much smack uh, in the middle of uh, the space between the Valley and West Hollywood. So um, I, I could almost, you know, flip a coin to decide which side I'd go to day to day. Nice. All right. Well, we'll look for flowers in your hair and your first CD will drop any minute now, I'm sure. With <laughs> songwriting yes. Stuff. As long as I soon learn how to actually play the guitar. Plenty of time on that too. Plenty of time. <laughs> listen, when we come back, we'll talk to Jessica a little bit about her actual real life job when she's not hanging out in the Canyon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Zag. Be right back. So when folks ask you what you do for a living, how do you answer that question? Hmm. I generally say I work at education policy. It always leads to an interesting facial expression and people I speak with um, because that's pretty not specific an answer, I realize. 
Um, but then I, I elaborate by saying that I work with a statewide organization that is essentially the private nonprofit partner of the California Department of Education. And while that gives a little more hints, again, I know it's pretty nebulous and um, it depends who I'm speaking with, how I then move on from there. And then not really, an, not really an elevator pitch, I guess. That's I true, true. Is it a long, unless it's a very tall building with the elevator in it. Do you? Yeah, the Burj Khalifa. Yeah, exactly right. Do you have education policy preferences? What kind of things are you advocating for policy-wise? Uh, well, we definitely stay neutral as an organization when it comes to policy. It focuses more on the implementation of existing policy, which is really where rubber hits the road. You can have a great uh, set of policies to work with, and they will not succeed unless you have the muscle to implement them properly and with uh, clarity and alignment. But in our case, uh, the projects range from labor management to help uh, adults act like grownups on behalf of the kids. That is not the tagline for the for the project, <laughs> but um, it really brings uh, labor leadership, administrators, school board leadership together because there's some really interesting research that shows, surprise, surprise, when adults do that, children uh, succeed and have better outcomes in districts where things are more harmonious on that level. Um, I'm our director of STEAM initiatives, so we also do a number of things related to more equitable and accessible STEAM education, especially uh, California's Next Generation Science Standards, Computer Science for All Students in California, and um, our biggest and most longstanding initiative, which is our uh, about 3,000-person California STEAM Symposium, which is annual and usually flips between North and South. And in terms of standards, I know people don't necessarily know what next generation science standards are, but have probably followed at some point the debate about Common Core and those kind of things. What kind of pushback, if any, have you seen about the statewide adoption of next generation science standards or really even any push to have computer science lifted up in a different way, given all the jobs that are coming in the future? Uh, do you get any pushback or people are pretty much excited about adopting it? You know, it's funny, California in general didn't get as much horrifying pushback to the Common Core state standards as other states did, uh, even though that transition was certainly one that took a lot of work. The next generation science standards were able to follow in the footsteps of having to do work, but not, you know, fight a bloody match around Common Core state standards here in California. Uh, I will say that the NGSS, as we call them, essentially are a way to do science that is more fun, more collaborative. You get to step in the shoes of a scientist. And again, surprise, surprise, the way kids and even adults actually like to learn. Uh, it's very interdisciplinary. It's much more um, context focused. So it can be really personalized to students and their communities and their identities. A lot of it is based on phenomena, which is something that happens around us every day. And it's more about asking questions about the world than it is about memories, memorizing parts of a cell. So um, it's it's better to work with something like that and hopefully not get pushed back. But, you know, of course, you have longstanding educators who have taught science in their own way for years and years and have uh, probably initiative fatigue with every new thing they're supposed to be doing to improve. And it's, um, you know, constantly helping people see what an opportunity this is, that if the classroom looks like it's totally chaotic, that's actually a hallmark of NGSS being implemented well. Uh, things like that. Uh, I, I would say one of the biggest pushbacks that's kind of system-wide is where we have funding. 
Uh, we have science standards, but uh, often science, just like art and some other disciplines, can be treated like another add-on that we don't really have time for. Um, it can be hard to integrate throughout the day uh, and at the elementary level, for example, um, just because you have so many other things to uh, include in your day. So it's really about supporting uh, the, those implementers, those teachers in the classroom um, in being able to see this as a part of their work and actually really a really great tool to engage students in general. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about sharks all day? I know. I was talking to someone the other day. They're asking me what I t- taught for science when I taught fourth and fifth grade many years ago. And this was before next generation science standards, but I, I don't know how much of a science aptitude, but those standards were fantastic. It was space and basic chemistry and weather phenomenon and, and you know photosynthesis and these kind of things that really excite kids. So uh, I definitely am jealous that folks get to have actually a really robust set of standards to work with and get in, get into and have kids be excited about it. Now, you know, last thing on this, what do you feel like would be the way to inspire more teachers to want to jump into the profession on math instruction or on STEM instruction in general? What do you think is the most compelling way to get people to take that plunge? Yeah. And by the way, I would say that, um, space is cool again, which is great. <laughs> when my brother was in rocket club, it wasn't cool. Now all the kids in rocket club are the cool kids. Um, apparently. So I, I would say to get just teachers generally more, more teachers in STEM, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I think that's right. Sure. Uh, you know, it's really hard to be really great in math and computer science and science and turn down jobs where you make a lot more money to be in those fields, um, to be a teacher. But teachers are often people for whom teaching is a calling. Uh, I think one thing that would help them be drawn to the field and stay in the field is if we had uh, loan forgiveness or something that actually addressed the dollar challenges, um, also affordability with housing uh, in neighborhoods where teachers are, you know, really in short supply. So I think some of those surrounding elements can really help take away some of the pain points that teachers experience day to day with, you know, with the average teacher spending $600 out of pocket for supplies for his or her classroom. There are way too many financial pain points um, that often can drive teachers out of the classroom because it's just not sustainable, especially if they then want to have families. Um, And really, uh, I think helping people, especially, um, you know, potential more less likely people to join the profession who are have are exhibiting talent in some of these STEM or STEAM uh, majors in college, have them truly think about being an educator. Sometimes it, it's simply not brought to their attention as something that might be a really wonderful way to challenge their expertise and their passion for the work. Passion, probably more than anything, helping to engage kids in a classroom and, and really be a hallmark of a great teacher. Yeah. Well, listen, we appreciate your passion all these years in NLC. We wouldn't be the same without you. So thanks for hopping on the Zag. And thanks for everyone for listening to this episode. You can find all past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you want to find them. There's a whole bunch. Any topic, lots of cool NLC alums talking about lots of important progressive things. So thanks for listening. We'll have more episodes up soon. Until then, take care. 